Welcome to the Trial Better podcast series. This week, we'll discuss imaging trends, strategies, and best practices with your host, Brett Hoover, and featured guest, Amit Vasanji. Stay tuned to Trial Better. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this installment of the Trial Better podcast. My name is Brett Hoover, and I lead the product management team here for ERT Imaging. This week, I'll be your podcast host, but far more exciting than that is our guest speaker today, Dr. Amit Vasanji. Now, before we get to Amit, which is the exciting part, let's talk about the three topics we're going to focus on. Topic number one is the evolution and growth of imaging in clinical trials. Number two, we're going to talk about how you leverage imaging in clinical trials. And last but not least, we'll finish with how to improve imaging data in your clinical trial through the use of innovative technology. Now, with that said, let's get to the meat and taters. Let's welcome Amit Vasanji. Amit, welcome to the Trial Better podcast. If you don't mind, take a moment or two to kind of introduce yourself so our audience know who we're, who we're talking to. Sure. Um, so I uh, have about 17 years of experience um, running clinical trials, doing basic uh, research. I also develop algorithms for um, specifically for basic science and clinical trials. And I oversee a group of scientists, mostly PhDs and MDs, that um, set up the uh, clinical trials for uh, the protocols for the clinical trials. So basically, charter documents for these trials. Okay. So I, mean, I, I think I've heard you have both a preclinical and clinical background, meaning you, you kind of see both sides of the coin and you've got a, an interesting uh, translational perspective for all the studies that you work on. Yeah, I mean, it's, in terms of research, clinical trials and basic science aren't really that different. It's just who gives you the data. Um, so most of the basic science is from animal studies and uh, we write algorithms on them. Um, mostly in, in those trials, we write uh, algorithms because it's really hard to do um, a sort of quanti uh, qualitative analysis because most of those are peer-reviewed. On the clinical trial side, it's more um, grading and sort of uh, qualitative analysis. We're trying to change that in, in our approach, but um, they're, so they're not that different. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. So let's get started. Now, technology and innovation continue to reshape how clinical trials are performed, and this is particularly evident when we talk about imaging and drug and device studies. Now, over the past 10 years, imaging has moved from being mostly qualitative assessments to being more true quantitative measurements. I think this is driven by the increasing need to visually demonstrate safety and efficacy in light of new treatments to a range of stakeholders, you know, folks like uh, the FDA, patients, providers, so on and so forth. Now, Amit, from where you sit, what impact do you think technology and innovation is having on our industry? So there's been a, a rise in the amount of imaging that's, um, uh, or the amount of quantitative analysis in the in imaging um, for clinical trials. In general, imaging has increased about 700% in clinical trials since around 2000. Oh, wow. So there's a massive uh, increase or impetus by the FDA to get imaging in, in a lot of these trials. And the reason is it's a more of a visual sort of tangible evidence of what's happening in these patients. Rather than looking at lab data, um, you can actually see these things happening real time with these, with these subjects. Um, and so there's a drive to do it in a more quantitative way. In terms of qualitative, which is the traditional approach versus quantitative, you've got these images and there's, um, I, you've heard people say that an image is worth a thousand words. Right. I'd say an image is worth a thousand endpoints. There's a, there's a ton of data within these images that you can gather. And so why not use 
the information that's in the images rather than doing a subjective um, assessment because you could do continuous variables um, in, in these images rather than saying, yeah, I think it's a good or bad, a thumbs up, thumbs down. So, um, it, and if you were a subject of these trials, what would you want? Right? You would right. want um, someone to tell me how, how much better am I getting or how much worse am I getting, not simply, yeah, I think you're okay, you, you'll be okay for the next you know, three or four years. But I want, I want to I want, as a doctor, I would want to tell you how much better you're getting. So. so it sounds like what we're doing is transitioning from opinion to more data-driven evidence. Right, right. All right. Well, you know, another driver of growth in the industry that I think we're seeing is imaging's a unique ability to help sponsors differentiate their new treatment from the standard of care. Now, when we combine purpose-built image analysis software into the mix, imaging provides the means to justify a novel endpoint or endpoints uh, which support a therapy's efficacy claim for regulatory approval. Now, I would say this is particularly important when gaining buy-in from payers, you know, insurance companies who want to know the stuff's working, and from providers who, quite frankly, you know, doctors and nurses, that they want to know that they can have confidence in the treatment they're recommending for their patients. I'd like to think imaging plays a big role in this. But, you know, in addition to that, Amit, what trends are you seeing in imaging for clinical trials? Um, I think it's just that it's the quantitative aspect of it. Um, if you're taking these images and you're dosing patients with radiation, you want to actually have some value for doing that, right? There's a risk for these subjects in getting these right. um, scans. So, um, and then the, on the sponsor side, they're paying a ton of money for these acquisitions. In fact, I'd argue that the acquisition, uh, the amount they pay the site for these images and then the amount that they pay the centralized uh, service like a CRO like us, um, and analyzing those images is pretty high. It's the majority of what we charge our sponsors. So you want to get the most value out of that. And as I mentioned before, you want to be able to tell what's happening with that subject in a continuous way rather than saying on a scale of 0 to 10, it's the patient is this uh, getting better or worse. For example, if you had a lesion in a, in a patient and you can actually measure how big that lesion's getting over multiple time points, I can tell you it's grown by 10% or 20% rather than just saying, uh, on, a, on a graded scale, it's, it's stable disease or progressive disease or um, partial response, com complete response, which are some of the categories that you have in some of these cancer trials. So I think there's a, more of a shift now towards that sort of paradigm rather than doing um, sort of bucketed categories. Right. So I'm guessing it's pretty hard to show a longitudinal improvement in a, in a drug if you're just going by opinion, bigger, bigger, smaller, bigger, what does that really get you? Right, right, and in, and in doing that, you're also eliminating, you're adding this adjudication where if you bucket things together, let's say a subject had, one, one reader said a subject had a progressive disease, which, may, which may, means that the subject's uh, cancer is getting worse. And another reader says, oh, I think they have stable disease. So you've already bucketed it in those two categories. Now you're going to send it to a third reader who's going to say, agree with one or the other. And so all he has to choose from is one of those categories. Right. Why not just say, I, I got 10% worse or 10% 10, uh, 10 better? You've right. got a definitive answer. Right. You don't need to take it to another reader. Right. So, so that the idea there is that if we can be more quantitative and take some of the subjectivity out of the read, there's a possibility to reduce the need for maybe a two plus one reader of paradigm. Right, and then the other uh, way you can do this, in, in, and this is our sort of approach, is to use image analysis to, um, to improve the process. So right now you've got you know, two readers or two readers and an adjudicator going in and making manual uh, assessments for where these lesions are. Sure. And 
these categories that are in, in existence right now are mainly because we don't want to put too much burden on these readers because it takes too long to, to make these assessments. We have some trials with 17,000 time points in it. So these readers have to go in and manually annotate every single image. It takes them a really long time. Um, what if you had an algorithm could, that could auto-detect all of those lesions? Right. And then you give it to the reader. The reader still goes in and doesn't overread. So they say, oh, okay, I, I agree with the algorithm here, or I'm going to make an adjustment to the algorithm here, or it missed something here, because nothing's going to be perfect, right? But at least you've improved the um, efficiency of that reader. You've also reduced the variability because you're not biased. The, you're not relying on the uh, reader's experience, which could be fraught with, uh, with right. bias. So. You're effectively focusing the reader's clinical experience on the one part or one step within the image evaluation right. workflow where it's truly important. Right not where it's going to add a lot of bias or variability. Right. Oh, all right. Well, you know, moving on from that, and I think this is quite related, let's talk about money. You know, money's a big driver in a lot of behaviors we have in many aspects, but in clinical trials, you know, there's a huge push to reduce the overall cost of research and ultimately the cost to get a drug or device through regulatory approval. Taking on what you kind of just said there, how do you think imaging helps reduce costs in clinical trials? Well, specifically, image analysis can, um, like I said, improve that efficiency. So if you had, if all a reader had to do is go into a case and look at everything that an algorithm already segmented, so basically the algorithm's already um, defined where all the lesions are, and the reader is just having to go in and say, oh, yeah, I agree or I don't agree, right. you've drastically improved the reading time. You can also do that with customizing software so that it, it allows a reader to go through the workflow. So we've got... Uh, there's, I don't know, hundreds of different criteria that you can use for oncology, for example. Right. Um, with device trials, there's probably another, you know, 100, depending on the type of indication you have. Though if a reader, a, an expert, a radiologist that's going in to make these assessments for these multiple trials, they get confused all the time because they don't know which trial they're reading for, which criteria they should be reading for. And there's a lot of math that's involved um, in doing some of these categories, right? defining whether a patient fits in one or another. Like partial response, complete response. Right. Yeah. And so if you customize the workflow so they can only go through that workflow and it has edit checks as, as they go along, they can't make mistakes, right? And then you let the software do a lot of the automated analysis for the math, right? So the reader doesn't have to do that. On top of it, if you add the analysis, you actually improve their, um, not only the variability that you have between readers, but their efficiency. They don't, they don't have to do things that um, may annotate or do a lot of time-intensive sort of tasks. So in terms of how that rolls up in the cost, it sounds like if you can take that approach, you're going to get faster reads. Right you're going to reduce the errors that are driven by the fact that the readers are just human. You know, humans are inconsistently inconsistent. We're good at it. Part of thinking. And last but not least, I'm guessing if you get fewer errors, you're probably going to have fewer queries related to the reads, and that all rolls up to just less time and effort, and quite frankly, less hassle near the end of the study. So one of the biggest issues with these trials is data management. So, and it's basically resolving those queries you were talking about. So if a reader makes a mistake, it has a large impact in how quickly you can deliver the data back to the sponsor, because data management would have to go in and fix all the queries. And if you think about it, let's say a subject had, you know, 10 different time points, and then time point number five or let's say worse, time point number nine had an issue in it, okay. you actually have to reset all the other time points. Or, or the, sorry, the other way around. So let's say time point two had a, an issue. Um, all of the follow-ups that were already read have to be all reset. So you have to reset back to time point right. two, and if there were 10 time points, they have to reread those eight or seven. Right, because they're all dependent on the previous time point. So, or it could be. Right. And so it has a large impact. If you did that for 20% of your cases and you had 17,000 time points, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. A lot of work. A lot so, of cost. Right. So if you, if you do a lot of that up front and you do these edit checks and, and you customize the, work for, uh, the workflows for these criteria, you won't have those issues. Well, the approach you've taken, your team has taken, is that basically rather than getting really good at fixing problems, just prevent them. Right. 
Right. Oh. And that's why having scientific input in these trials up front, instead of waiting and kicking the can down the road, is, is critical for these trials. They might have a little bit of impact on how quickly those trials get out initially, but you set it up to uh, work correctly and, and not fail later on. So. Well, I've got a question later about the importance of science in these studies, so I think you're totally queuing me up here. So let's move on to the next question where, you know, I mean, there are clearly a lot of positives in implementing imaging in a clinical trial. You've pointed out a handful there. Um, I think a key benefit that comes to mind is how imaging gives us a more comprehensive look at the safety and efficacy of a treatment. You know, for example, if you take advanced imaging and analysis protocols, they can be useful across a wide range of therapeutic areas and indications, especially if we take an artificial intelligence approach or if we tailor the image analysis software to the actual needs of that study. Don't assume one imaging study is just like the other. So, you know, this is particularly the case for rare diseases and medical, disease, medical device studies wherein, you know, the study execution requires a more innovative approach. So my question to you is, can you think of a specific example wherein you guys have taken a more innovative, creative approach to imaging and how that's benefited the outcomes of the study? Yeah, so we've actually done it uh, quite a few times now. One specific example was, is with a subset of um, a disease called interstitial cystitis where you have lesions in the bladder. Okay. Um, they're extremely painful for the subject and uh, the only way to currently treat them is to basically cauterize the lesions. Um, so with heat? Uh, correct, right. And to, in, order, in order for you to do that, you have to distend the bladder so much that these lesions stretch and it, they're all attaching nerves. It's really painful for the subject and mostly it, it's in women. So, um, and it actually, that disease has a high rate of suicide as well, just because of the amount of the pain. pain the lifestyle right. they have to right. endure. Um, so we worked with a company that actually had a treatment that, um, where they inserted a device and the device uh, eluded a drug that basically healed these lesions. And in a phase one, an early trial, it showed that these uh, lesions are so this is a combination product, drug and device. Right, right. Ah, okay. Um, but we realized that um, even the KOLs, the key opinion leaders that have a lot of experience in this disease, don't really know what they look like in a video. Um, so the traditional way to do these scans is basically insert a cystoscope into the bladder and then um, sweep through the bladder and, and take images. So it's like a, okay. a, a movie of the... Like the, the video of an inside of a basketball. Right, exactly. So. Uh, what we did was determine, and we, we um, have an algorithm that basically takes those frames and stitches them together, so, uh, sort of like an iPhone when you do a panorama. Okay. So it stitches them all together, you get one big image that's sort of a, a Mercator map of the inside of the body. A uh, Mercator map. I remember those back in elementary school. Right, right. So we gave five KOLs um, all of like a hundred maps from a hundred different subjects, uh, multiple time points, and we allowed them to just manually annotate where they saw the lesions. We only got about a 40% agreement on where these lesions were, so it was terrible. Like they couldn't even agree where those lesions were. And these are the top five KOLs for that disease on the planet. Right. And they couldn't agree with themselves or agree with each other? Uh, both. Um, we actually had them reread some of the same cases and they couldn't agree that that's on that same lesion that they called before that they see it saw it again. So how, how do you convince the FDA, as a sponsor, how do you convince the FDA to allow a study for like, a study like that to happen if it's clear that the traditional way of approaching the reads is just not going to work? So what we did was we wrote an algorithm because our, our uh, assessment was that an algorithm could actually find these lesions more consistently than the readers could. So what we did was that we took all of those five KOLs and all of their measurements and we overlaid them on top of each other. 
And so we did a consensus map. So basically, it's sort of like four out of five dentists agree sort of thing. So it's uh, that's exactly you what we did. You assume the fifth guy and gal's wrong and right, the four agree. Right. And so we then trained the algorithm to find the four out of five agreement. And then we wrote a validation report that says, in terms of agreements with the four out of five, the, the algorithm performed this well. So we, we actually determined it performed about 8% of the time um, and agreed with those four out of five. Oh. And then we presented that in a report and then provided it to the sponsor who, who then uh, submitted it to the FDA. Right. And so in that particular trial, the algorithm was actually used as the endpoint, not the reader. Really? Yes. The, the FDA agreed that this, the reader had too much variability. So that seems like evidence that you know the FDA isn't all about saying no. The right. FDA are they're, they're humans and they're scientists just like us. What they want you to do is to convince them right. that you're taking a a safe and effective approach to gain the data that they need to feel comfortable telling you yes. Right. Um, basically, you need to show them that the approach that you're taking is validated, and not just for one or two images. You have to show across a number of subjects that these algorithms are work, working as you expect. But also, you want to have you don't, in most cases, you don't want the, the algorithm to give you the final output. Just like in diagnostic medicine, right? Well, if you went in and you, you had, uh, so there's an algorithm for breast CAD, for example, sure. which is a computer-aided diagnosis. You wouldn't want software to tell you whether you had cancer or not. You want somebody who's an expert to look at the images that the software generated and say, okay, based on my opinion and the software, I believe that you have uh, cancer. So let the software do all the legwork. Right. And at the end of the day, between the software and final judgment, is the clinic is the clinician right. is the clinical expert right. where the biased and sometimes convoluted thinking of a human actually adds the most value? Right, right. So in this particular study with the um, bladder lesions, we uh, not only developed the acquisition, so how quickly they could scan these images. We we took the ten minute uh, normal sort of assay, which again is painful painful for the subject. Right. Reduce it down to three minutes. Three minutes down from uh, ten minutes. Ten minutes. So basically, we told them exactly how to sweep the bladder. We then had an algorithm that stitched them together, and then the software automatically found all the lesions in the um, in the bladder. So you guys weren't necessarily trying to reduce the image acquisition protocol time. You just want to get a better image. But along the way to getting a better image, you also created a better protocol, which was less harmful to the patient. Right. And we the algorithm does an additional outputs, not just whether they found a lesion or not. So it tells you on every given lesion how big it is, how red it is, so whether it's aggressive or active, um, whether it's bleeding or not, um, whether it's regularly shaped. So all of those metrics come out of the algorithm automatically. So a reader trying to make those assessments would be almost impossible. I was just going to say the amount of time it would take for the reader to pull out all that data, assuming they even could, would be either cost prohibitive or time prohibitive. Yeah, and that's where we find uh, the use of algorithms to be the most important, um, where it's, it's almost impossible for a reader to um, find uh, to define these endpoints, or it's, it will take way too much time. We have a study looking at microaneurysms in the eye. There's uh, literally, literally on a given image, 500 to 1,000 of them. So for them to manually annotate every single one, yeah, it's, the algorithm could find a lot of micros. Gotcha. Interesting. All right. Well, thinking of another example of how folks have gotten creative and tailored their approach to imaging, and how that's had a profound impact on data quality and even operational throughput. You know, I'm thinking of oncology trials, specifically immunotherapy studies, you know, where a sponsor will come to you and say, hey, I don't want to just do one tumor assessment criteria, I want to do two. So, for example, uh, resist and IR resist. You know, in this case, I've seen situations where we've used image processing and analysis software tailored to both the reader workflow, the paradigm, and the dual criteria approach, 
And quite frankly, as a result of that, we've been able to improve data quality by lowering and lower study costs by reducing you know, reader error rate, uh, adjudication rate, and quite frankly, sometimes even the need for a two plus one paradigm. That's rare, but it is possible. My question for you, Amit, is you know, a case like this doesn't happen because someone didn't take planning and involving imaging planning early necessary. Uh, um, didn't take that seriously. You know, a lot of times when folks come to a clinical trial, a CRO, they'll think of imaging at the very end of the planning phase. My question to you is, is that what advice would you give to a sponsor thinking about incorporating imaging into their study such that they can maximize the benefit? So every um, study starts with a study protocol. So it's what they're basically submitting to the FDA and saying this is exactly what we want to do for this trial. Okay. The imaging section isn't usually that large in there and it's it's pretty much open-ended. In fact, a lot of them just say refer to the imaging charter from your CRO. So basically an appendix with one sentence. Right. So what we have to do is basically dissect the protocol, determine what the mechanism of action is, so how that drug is actually working, okay. and then we make suggestions on what, what, the, what the final endpoint should be. Sometimes they're already laid out there, but they're not described fully, and they don't always account for some of the um, issues with workflow that you might have. Okay. So we give the sponsor some of our own input on um, what we think uh, the, outcome, out, out, uh, the output should be and the workflow should be in the, in the trial. And they, all, they sign off on that, and that's all included in the imaging charter. So it's critical that you do that upfront on, on any of these trials. And we don't claim, as ERT, we don't claim that we know everything either. So we will take scientific input from outside groups as well. So we know that there's a specific expert in this particular type of cancer. We'll bring them in, and okay. we'll, we, we will contract with them. They will actually help us design some of these protocols, and then we will also give that input in, uh, to the sponsor as well. So. so you and your team take a more collaborative approach. And it sounds like you're not afraid to be firm when you know you're right and to be open and collaborative when you know there's other possibilities. Right, right. And there's a, like you mentioned before, there's a lot of uh, studies that do multiple criteria. Not, in fact, the FDA will only accept the business one one as their, the, ah. their criteria endpoints. But it's, they've realized, and a lot of sponsors have realized that in these drugs, um, you'll get an initial response where um, the uh, lesions and the, these tumors are actually growing. Um, because they uh, are essentially dying, but they fill with water oh, or fill with material God. that's um, uh, just uh, by, uh, the um, by parts of like the actual um, uh, toxicity, toxicity of the drug uh, treating the cancer. So they uh, they have a phase where they grow and then they shrink back down called pseudo progression. Pseudo progression. Okay, I've heard of that. Right. And so there's a lot of criteria that take that into account, but resist one one doesn't. Um, so you end up with progression, and then the, the subject is basically taken off of the trial um, based on whether the site recommends that or not, so the patient care at the site. Um, what we've done is um, allowed um, our system to do multiple criteria at the same time. So the reader doesn't have to do two different criteria and read twice. Ah, okay. uh, we take the commonalities between each of those criteria and incorporate into the same read. Oh, interesting. So by doing one read and overlapping the criteria where they're common, it's only the it's only the differential between those two that's actually the extra work. Oh, so I'm so I imagine that goes back to our concept of reducing the cost in studies and also improving the turnaround time for the read. So basically, you can do two criteria without being completely punished for the extra effort, cost, or time that comes along with that. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know, a common theme I'm hearing in a lot of your responses to the questions in that um, seem to be science. You know, and, you know, my background as a former scientist and stem cell researcher, I have a, a fair amount, a fair appreciation for how science should be the, the foundation for pretty much everything we do in clinical trials. I, I personally think it, it behooves a sponsor to seek out partners who are likewise committed to scientific rigor and how they implement imaging. Now, I know you've got a strong scientific background and a long track record of um, successful clinical trial and clinical research support. 
My question for you, though, Ahmed, is, you know, in light of this, what do you think a sponsor should look for when trying to find the right imaging partner, science or otherwise? Um, I think someone who actually values the, the design of the trial up front, like basically the, the input from the science, making sure that the um, charter documents for the design of the trial is in line with the study protocol, um, and, and selecting the appropriate readers for that particular indication. So if you've got renal cell uh, carcinoma, finding a reader that's an expert in renal cell carcinoma is critical because there's a very defined sort of visual assessment in, in these patients in the CT scans. Uh, also, qualifying sites, making sure that they're set up correctly and have the right equipment, because you've heard the term garbage in, garbage out. Oh, yeah. So, for imaging. Right. And it, it, yeah, it definitely applies to imaging. So if you've got a really badly acquired image, there's no way a reader, even doesn't matter how good, how good they are, how experienced they are, they're not going to be able to make an assessment. So um, the worst thing you could do is have all of these scans done and the outcome be not valuable, not valuable, uh, which is basically means I can't read it. Ah, um, interesting. So getting that all set up up front before the sites even start acquiring images is important. So what we do um, is we do a we have a qualification process where the sites would submit example images to us. They could be historical images from other subjects if, if they're allowed to send it to us. Um, they could be scans that they do on the first subject, um, uh, the acquisition of the first subject uh, time point. We will do assessments to make sure that their equipment is uh, adequate for the, the type of scans or type of uh, endpoint. Um, in some cases, depending on the modality, we also qualify the technician who's acquiring them. For a CT or an MRI, the technician's not that important because you're basically setting up the parameters in the system, in the scanner, uh, in, their, in the console, and then the patient just lies down flat. They're, not, they're usually motionless. So um, for techniques like x-ray and ultrasound, where the positioning of the subject is critical, ultrasound, uh, yeah. ultrasound in, in particular, where you're actually the Technician, and you've had, you know, if you, you if you had a wife that's pregnant, um, they, you'll see, you know, the the technician move the ultrasound probe around. If you're not acquiring the right region, you don't have the right orientation of the probe, you get a completely different image. You won't be able to assess it if you miss something. So, so training will be particularly important for those modalities that are, you know, more more art than science. Because I've seen I've seen folks do ultrasounds before, and I, I swear they're doing the same thing in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they they can you know change it based on the the subject's anatomy, and so that's it's sort of it's years of experience that these sonographers have um, in acquiring these images, and you want to make sure that you don't have sonographers that have limited experience doing some of these trials because you're not going to get the images that you need. Right, or at the very least, you have to standardize the training so you take sort of that experience burden out of the equation. Right, right, and then there are certain modalities like MRI that are really hard to set up because. Um, uh, CT scans are sort of, you know, they're pretty similar across the board, um, across multiple hospitals. MRIs, depending on how old the machine is, can't do certain things that you want them. So we, they're called sequences, which are basically types of a uh, acquisitions that you do for these, uh, um, for, for these um, trials. And in some trials, we ask for very specific sequences, right. but not all pieces of equipment can do it. So luckily, we have a physicist um, um, on board that will actually tailor the acquisition protocol for that particular machine. But it requires a lot of upfront setup. So it, it, that, that can be helpful in one of those situations where you've got either a, rare, a few number of sites that can actually enroll those patients, or you've got one particularly high rolling site with lots of patients, but they may not have the right imaging equipment. Right. So we can get creative to get a feel for how do we do the best we can within the confines of what we're given so we can help that sponsor and get access to that patient population. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Well, if you can believe this, I only had six questions for you today. That's actually all of them. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Um, I, I want to say, you know, thank you for your time and for your insight. And, you know, 
to the folks out there in the audience, the three, the three things we covered today were uh, growth and imaging, you know, how it's, how it's grown as a modality and an assessment in clinical trials over time. We talked about how to improve imaging data through the use of technology. And, you know, last but not least, we, we talked about best practices for implementing imaging in clinical trials. Um, this is a reminder. I'm Brett Hoover. I'm this week's uh, podcast host. And I ask all of you to stay tuned for our next installment of the Trial Better podcast series. Thank you. Well, that's it. Special thanks to this week's host, Brett Hoover, and guest Amit Vasanji for their thoughtful discussion on trial imaging. And thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast or shoot us a message at trialbetter at ert.com. You may be our next featured guest. Again, thank you for joining us. And as always, trial better. Hi there. Are you at DIA? Then stop by booth 1231 and visit the ERT team or attend one of our many speaking sessions. Play our latest Trial Better podcast and ask our team the hard questions. You never know, we may ask you to be our next special guest. Remember, booth 1231 and we'll see you soon.